turn in your Bibles, please do so to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Here we go. I often hear it said that, or nowadays, that the book of Revelation is unfolding before our eyes or, or something along those lines. And I can't help but wonder when a person says that, what do they mean exactly? Are specific prophecies in the book of Revelation being fulfilled? And if so, which ones? Right? How is it unfolding now before our very eyes in a way that it hasn't been in the past? I think it's more accurate to say that since the ascension of Jesus Christ back to the Father, when He was enthroned as the King, the book of Revelation has been unfolding before our very eyes. I'm not preaching Revelation to point out specifics of prophecy or to prove who the Antichrist is or anything like that. I'm not preaching Revelation so that you do or don't get the vaccine you know, or, a, or a, a chip in your hand in fear that you might be inadvertently taking the mark of the beast. I don't believe those things. That's not how it works. I'm preaching Revelation because I think what's crucial for us to know, us, this congregation, at Moundsville Baptist Church, at this moment in time, is that Jesus Christ is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, but that He is also the ruler of kings on earth right now, in whatever time, in whatever place we live. The book of Revelation explains how God rescues and redeems His people through Jesus Christ, how He defeats Satan, ruins evil, how He restores creation where He will live with His people forever in a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation isn't so wonderful or even relevant because it lays out a specific blueprint of the events that take place between, you know, whenever and when Jesus returns. Revelation will not give us the answer to when Jesus will return. I'm not going to be setting or predicting any dates. That's not what I'll be doing in this. This book is mainly for suffering Christians to reassure them that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, will triumph. The focus of this book is the overwhelming sovereignty of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit and our triune God's resolve to bring His people from every nation into everlasting joy in His presence. Revelation gives the triumphant assurance to the struggling churches of Asia Minor, first of all, that behind the scenes and throughout all the changes of history, the kingdom of God holds the power, and Jesus Christ is the King of kings and is on His Father's throne, executing, as we speak, His sovereign judgment over the whole world. It will often seem like the opposite is true to our eyes. It will usually look like the church of Jesus Christ is only despised and defeated, that it's losing, that the cause of righteousness is losing, but it is Jesus Christ who rules the kings on the earth that make their decisions and their policies that affect our everyday lives. Jesus Christ rules them, and He's patiently working out in all these things all His purposes in His creation. I'm preaching revelation because we need to know and to remember, beloved, that God wins. He wins. As extensive as Revelation is, it has one main theme holding it together, which is what the whole book is ultimately about. God wins. Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Lamb of God, is the victor through whom God will triumph over the world and the devil and evil once and for all. 
This is the central truth the book of Revelation wants to declare. To understand it properly, by the way, we'll need some things in our heads. We'll need to read Revelation as the, and I'm quoting here, the climax of prophecy, bringing to consummate fulfillment the prophetic tradition of Israel. Meaning that Revelation is what the whole Bible has been heading towards all along. So, rather than trying to impose all other prophecy into it, I believe we need to understand all prior prophecy in light of revelation. This is the capstone. We cannot understand any individual passage without understanding the whole, but we can't understand the whole without understanding the individual passages. This is not a book to fear. This is not a book to avoid, but to consume again and again. This book is for you and me, beloved. It's for us. It's intended for us. It wasn't meant to deepen confusion. Look at the title. It was meant to reveal. There are things God wants us to know that He has told us. One of the difficulties facing us, though, as we begin to study Revelation, is the amount of, I would say, superstitions about it. These show us how far we've come from John's original intention in writing. And in our English Bibles, the word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. We get our word apocalyptic from this. When you and I say, or when we use the word apocalyptic, we think of the end of the world. That's what our minds go to. But in Greek, the word mainly speaks to an unveiling, a revelation of something. By the way, let me get this out of the way right now. All right. The title of the book is Revelation, not Revelations, plural. If you say revelations, you are thereby disqualified from ever commenting on the end times. You can't, it's not allowed. If you don't know the name of the book, stop. You, you, you've derailed. All right. You're already off. Just, just quit it. All right. Revelation, one revelation, not revelations. The book identifies its author four times. It's John the Apostle who authored the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. When it was written, is debatable. Some say it was written uh, sometime in the early 60s A.D., before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Others believe, which I think is more accurate, that it was written in the 90s A.D. John was most likely in his 90s on the Isle of Patmos when he wrote the letter. For what it's worth, again, I believe a much later date than 70 A.D. is much more uh Accurate, but there are four main views or four views that are the most widely held in interpreting Revelation. There's the preterist view. I think it's a Latin word saying past or something like that, but the preterist view, which argues it was written in the 60s AD and all of the prophecies in it are about um, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So all of it is in the past, it's all already happened, everything in it has already been fulfilled. Um, I mean, it, it's it's not tenable, really, and, and, and less and less people have that view today, but it's still there. Um, there's the futurist view, which is the most common or widely held view in America. You get outside of America, and people's view of the end times is much, much different. I think that's important. But in America, the futurist view is the most common and widely held. The futurist view argues that in 6-1, with the opening of the first seal, until 1921... And the second coming of Christ, Revelation describes events that will exclusively happen in the future. 
They haven't happened yet. They will come about during this period called what they call the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period in the future that begins with the rapture of the church. This view was first espoused or promoted by the founder of dispensationalism in the 1800s. That's how new that view is in the world, John Nelson Darby. But the seal, the trumpet, and the bull judgments haven't happened yet. They will come during the tribulation. Then there's the idealist view, which argues that the prophecies in the book don't describe any particular event in church history per se, either now or in the future, but instead describe with this language that the timeless conflict between good and evil in symbolic terms. Then there's what's called the eclectic or the mixed view as the fourth one, which holds that parts of the book have already been fulfilled in the book itself. It was written to seven local churches. So whatever John says has to be relevant to the churches to whom he was writing in the first century. But it is also describing events that are happening right now and will continue to happen um, prior to the second coming or, or events prior to the second coming. So in that view, Revelation speaks of the entire course of events between the first and second comings of Jesus. The seals, the bulls, the trumpets, for example, are portrayed then in that view as events that happen again and again over time between the first and second comings of Jesus. Revelation describes what is happening throughout the whole of church history, right? That's that view. This would be the view that I hold in case you're wondering as we go through. Now, let me say one thing here at the outset, just before we begin. It's, it's very important to realize that the end times is a subject we can agree to disagree on, right? We, we don't all have to see it the same way. There are certain things about the second coming that we do need to agree on. For example, uh, the preterist view has always been confusing to me as to will there be a second coming? Will Jesus appear visibly? If we deny that, I think we have an issue biblically. But for the most part, we can agree to disagree on, on some of these things. I, I don't think the end times is the litmus test of somebody's orthodoxy. I don't think, I think that's putting way too much weight on our view of the end, of eschatology, which is theology dealing with the end or end time things. Accusations fly between the two different, or between the four different camps that really are not very gracious. Unfortunately, it has become a litmus test. And so if you hold this view, you're a liberal. If you hold this view, you're overly conservative, etc., etc. One of the insults to the futurist position, from which is the most common one, one of the ways people from my camp insult the futurist view unfairly is um, to say that they, the futurist doesn't take seriously enough the centrality of Jesus Christ in Scripture and wants to downplay his importance. I don't believe that's fair, um, and I don't believe it's being honest. I, I don't believe anybody that holds the futurist view is trying or wants in any way, shape, or form to downplay the centrality and supremacy of Christ in Scripture. I, I believe that might be an inadvertent implication of the dispensationalist view that lends itself to futurism, but I don't believe that's what a futurist wants to do, right? Or is trying to do. On the other side, one of the insults of the eclectic or mixed view that I hold, one of the insults at us from the futurists is that we don't take seriously enough the promises of God or how God said they'd be fulfilled. I can understand why it may seem like that's the case and how the view I hold interprets certain promises, but I would say to my congregation, 
If you listen to me preach, you know that I don't take the promises of God lightly. That's not why I hold the view that I hold or his fulfillment of them. That's, that is not remotely what I would want to do or to imply. So as we study, let's remember if we hold the different views to be gracious with one another. You, you've all probably been in a Sunday school class where people start arguing about the end times or any time that, you know, something is happening in the Middle East, it, it must be the end. Right, it's it's right. We've been saying that. How long do we say that before we realize maybe we're not understanding this properly? Remember last last lost last Rosh Hashanah. That was it. All the rabbis had gotten together. They were sure that the Messiah was coming. So get ready. We're going to be raptured. No, didn't happen. Didn't happen. The next blood moon. That's the no, no, no. It's not. It didn't happen. There've been blood moons since the moon. So it's just it's superstitious. You know, it's like there. You'll see people. There's a Facebook thing that goes around every couple of years about the Monster Energy drink and how it's like the Illuminati. And if you drink it, it's the market. Just stop, stop, right? That that's not what God is doing. It's not silly, right? It's not, there's not a code, a secret code, by which you and I can figure out more than Jesus knows. Okay, it's it's not the case. So I'll preach from my view. And, and, and we may agree or disagree with it. That's fine. But let's be clear. Everyone in this room that loves Jesus wants to exalt and magnify him. That's their desire. That's probably why we hold the views that we hold. If it's not just the fact that that's what we've been taught. And so we've never questioned it. But we all want to magnify Christ. Every believer in this room believes the whole Bible is true and is the word of God. We need to remember the essentials that hold us together so that... We don't become divided over what is unfortunately, very unfortunately, probably the most heavily disputed and maybe misunderstood book in the scriptures. Jesus Christ, the Messiah and Lamb of God, is the victor through whom God will triumph over the world and the devil once and for all. On this, we all happily and completely agree. Trust me. All right, so let's pray. And we'll begin this amazing book. The introduction, of course, tonight had to be a little longer, but let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, how we thank you for the promise of your word that your son will return literally, physically, visibly to reign once and for all. Putting all his enemies under his feet, bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth. God, you created us. You will end us at the time you've chosen And your son will make all things new. Let this be the rock that holds us not only together, but holds our souls individually with complete, complete assurance until the end when your son breaks upon the world in all his glory. God, please fill me with your spirit for this sermon, for this passage, for this whole book. God, may it edify, strengthen challenge and comfort your people, I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We read the first three verses of John's letter. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So, Revelation came 
from God the Father to Jesus Christ, to his angel, to his servant John, and lastly, through John, to all of his servants, including us. This book has clearly been given, and we find out right when we open it, not to conceal, not to confuse, but precisely to show things, to reveal things, and to make things known. So it shouldn't be too difficult to understand. We come into Revelation with so much baggage, it's like we don't know what to do with it once we get past the seven churches without creating all these paradigms that we're just imposing on the text. Revelation is a mixture of genres. It's a book of apocalyptic prophecy. It's an epistle, a letter. It's a gospel testimony, and it's a means of blessing for God's suffering people. As a prophetic word, it doesn't just speak about the future or only to far-off readers in the future but of things that were very soon about to break upon the first audience of Revelation. It is calling, it's it's talking about things that are, again, are very soon about to break upon the first readers so that they might repent and obey the Word of God. That's the primary purpose of Revelation for that immediate audience, which is precisely what it calls our church to do today also. The Word is living. Revelation is the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, It's either a word about him or a word from him. It probably is intended to give both meanings. But in verse 1, he is showing his servants what must soon take place. In verse 3, the time is near. Interestingly, Revelation is bookended by this truth in chapter 22, that Jesus is coming soon, that the time is near. By the way, for the preterist person who sees everything as happening in the past, that's one of the verses they would point to to prove their view. Say, so, see, see it's, it's soon, it's near. Um, but this could also mean, or could also be referring to the speedily manner in which these things are going to occur. However, these words also carry, when we read soon and the time is near, they carry the meaning of certainty or of Eminence. Jesus is showing his people that there are immediate challenges they are going to face. We can also appeal to 2 Peter 3.8 if we wanted to in the way that God reckons time much differently than we do. Right? John writes from God's perspective and to God, everything is near. Though to us it's been 2,000 years and counting. But ultimately, I think the main purpose of those phrases, coming soon, the time is near, is relevance to the church, not necessarily putting a date or a time frame on anything. The book takes on an apocalyptic form, but delivers a prophetic message that, again, was immediately relevant to the first readers, but continues to be so for the church in all times. It always reads the same in at least that sense. One uh, commentator of Revelation named G.K. Beale, whose works on this subject, along with Sam Storms, Dennis Johnson, Anthony Hokema, uh, just so many that have been in a huge help to me and will continue to be a help to me as I study this. He argues, and I think convincingly, that the words quickly, soon, and near in Revelation are deliberate substitutes for the prophet Daniel's words on the latter days. John is saying that Daniel's words now apply to this time, John's time. They've begun in John's time. It's not going to all happen instantly. It's going to occur over time. But the witness of the New Testament is clear that we have been in the last days since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Scripture refers to the time between the first and second comings of Jesus, all of it, as the last days. So what was distant future to Daniel is now being fulfilled in John's days and will keep on being fulfilled 
until the end. When John wrote Revelation, he could say that the things that were yet to come for Daniel are happening now, and many will continue to happen until Jesus returns. Here in verse 3, we come to the first of seven, interestingly, seven Beatitudes or blessings in Revelation. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Why is there a blessing for the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy? Well, we need to remember, Bibles were not being printed at this time. No, no, nobody had a copy of Scripture. They weren't in the pew in front of them, right? So if one had the privilege of standing up and reading Revelation out loud, he or she was blessed indeed. That would have been a wonderful thing. We think it's hard to understand, and we have the privilege of reading it and having it in front of us again and again and again. We could walk into most hotels, and if we wanted to read Revelation, we could open the top drawer and read the book of Revelation. Imagine the first recipients who their only access to it was to hear it read when they gathered together, which again, I think, beloved, implies we have made this book way too hard to understand. We're bringing way too much baggage into it that is keeping us from giving it a fair reading. The first century church that did not have Bibles were meant to get it just by hearing it to the extent that they would be blessed for doing so. There's another blessing there. Those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Beloved, if we're meant to keep what is written in it, to listen to and obey it, then God intended for us to understand it. How does one obey what he or she cannot understand. We've made the book far too difficult. We've made it very hard to take this book at face value or read it like we read the rest of the Bible. It's not meant to remain a mystery, nor is it meant to feed or fuel speculation about the end times. That's how those guys make their money. They have those shows that just talk about prophecy. There's a reason they have to keep doing them as though prophecy is always changing and evolving. It is not right. And so if something pops up that's weird or new, then they're going to hop on and say, see, this is that. And if you look at this and, th and that, and then there's this and that, and this thing means that. And it just, it never stops. It, it treats revelation like it's so confusing that you have to have like a captain crunch decoder on to even get it. That's not what is happening in the book of revelation. It's not meant to remain a mystery. It's not interpreted through codes or secret messages. You, you don't interpret it mainly by things that aren't there. And we just insert things into it when we reach a point that would seem to make our prior belief on the end times a little shaky. We'll just insert something. Let me take this out of uh, Ezekiel and put it here. And it just, it's not meant to be that way. This is not a book that only seminarians or scholars or geniuses can understand. Beloved, that goes not just against the title. It goes against the very purpose of the whole book. It's revelation, not concealment, right? It's not, here's a secret. I'm, I'm embedding this in a treasure map. You guys see if you can figure it out, right? That, that's, that's not what is happening. God intended for us to understand this book to the extent that we would keep what is written in it. It's meant to help us persevere when we begin to suffer as a church. Look back in verse 1 for a minute. This is... Absolutely crucial. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. 
The Greek verb for the phrase to show here literally means to signify by signs, symbols, and images. So in the very first verse, John literally tells us that he's writing a book that's being communicated in symbolic, figurative language. Graphic, bizarre, sometimes even weird images. The text, Revelation 1.1, is why we need to be very careful from the beginning not to press everything here into a literal interpretation. From the outset, we should understand that Revelation is mainly symbolic, not mainly literal. That's extremely important. It doesn't mean, that does not mean when I say that, that these things or the events prophesied are not going to happen. That's not what we mean. Or that God isn't going to keep His promises. Or that Revelation is a wax nose that we can make its symbol stand for whatever we want to. What Revelation 1.1 tells us is how to read the book. It tells us that to read the book of Revelation literally means to respect how it's been written. To respect its genre. Is everything in the book of Revelation true? Yes. Will everything in the book of Revelation that it's describing happen? Yes. It's just in Revelation, it's not communicated to us always in literal terms, but it's always symbolically true in how it describes things and events that are actually going to take place. So we're not saying when we say that, that this isn't going to happen or it's not real. We're saying we need to understand how it's been written to us and what John's purpose and approach was. Revelation communicates truth in ways that we normally don't. And we must respect that as we try to understand it. He is crystal clear on that in the first verse of the book. Look down to verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. This is the greeting that reveals to us we're also reading a letter that was written to some churches, just like the other letters in the New Testament. The book of Revelation was written primarily to seven churches in Asia Minor. We'll talk about them up through chapter 3. And it comes from the God who is and who was and who is to come. We'll see this phrase throughout the whole book. It doesn't just mean that God always is, but that God has always been the God who is coming. The triune God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then, is not a distant or remote God. That's the first thing about Him that we learn or that we discover in the book of Revelation. He's coming in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring together and consummate His purposes for creation. This letter also comes in verse 4 from the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits who are before His throne. I don't mean there are seven Holy Spirits. We'll learn that almost without exception... The numbers in Revelation are symbolic of something. The number seven means fullness or totality or perfection. When we read of the seven spirits before his throne, we're reading in symbolic terms the fullness and perfection of God the Holy Spirit as the Father and the Son are also being revealed. Revelation comes from the triune God who is three in one. Jesus Christ is this God's faithful witness. Hear that label. Keep it in your mind as we read the book of Revelation. In light of what Revelation is going to tell us about being the church and call us to as the church, it is a tremendous comfort to know that as we speak, 
Standing before God is the true faithful witness who never compromised, never turned lukewarm, never lost his first love, and never wavered in his commitment to proclaim the testimony of God's truth. The exhortation for us and revelation ultimately is to be just that faithful witnesses to the truth of Jesus Christ. And John is telling us when Jesus says something, what he tells us here, it is true. It comes from God. We can count on it. This Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. Beloved, that phrase, among other things, is the assurance that you and I, that his people, are going to be resurrected. When John says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, he doesn't mean that like us, there was a time when Jesus had to be made alive spiritually from the dead. This is a deliberate allusion to the Old Testament practice of primogenitor. This is when the firstborn in a family was given preeminence over his brothers and sisters. Jesus, we read in Psalm 89, 27, is the elevated one, the esteemed one. He has that position among mankind. He's always been. He was never created but he's the first of us, of the new creation. He's the one to whom God has given special rank and privilege as the first one that was raised from the dead to eternal life, to never die again. And lastly, beloved, Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Do you hear that, saints? Do you hear it? The ruler of kings on earth. Every worldly leader today, regardless of country or status, has a king whose name is Jesus. He rules all of them. He rules all of them. Their hearts are like water in his hands, and he turns them wherever he wills. Jesus Christ is in charge of this mess called planet Earth. He's in charge of it. I love what Sam Storms says here. If a king in the world, a leader in the world, is acting contrary to his purpose, according to Proverbs 21.1, God will just build a dam in their heart and redirect their intentions and their will. That's what he does. We'll see this come out all through Revelation, but especially when we get to 17.17, where he explicitly says he will put things into the hearts of earthly kings to carry out his purposes. That's what it means to be the king of kings. That's what it means to be the ruler of kings on earth. They're under his ultimate control. We feel like we're under theirs. We're still just under Christ's, no matter what they do, no matter what they say. Beloved, we live in discouraging times, to say the least. Very uncertain, unstable times. We feel more at the mercy of our leaders we don't approve of, maybe, than we've ever felt. But your Savior and your Shepherd revealed Himself to John so that we would be comforted by the fact that He is the King of the kings of the earth. Everything they do, even the stuff they do in secret, is all in the hands of Jesus Christ. Never forget that ultimately, every ruler on this world does His will. You and I should live accordingly. Not as if we don't know that or don't agree with that, or believe it. Is anybody in control of planet Earth? Is anybody behind the wheel of this thing? Yes. Your king. Your king. The world looks like it's out of control, maybe more than ever. I know that's true of my lifetime. I don't ever remember a time like this since I've 
been alive. But the churches in Asia Minor were experiencing real persecution at that moment or were about to. And this revelation comes to John so that when that comes or in the midst of it, they don't lose hope. Why should they not lose hope? Because Jesus is the king of all the kings on the earth. Even the ones that are after his children, even the ones that rule over our lives. As one pastor said, he rules in absolute sovereignty over America and the Middle East and Russia and North Korea and China and every other country. We don't know how he does this, but we know that he's doing it. And we certainly don't understand how by looking at the things that are happening, but we fall back in faith on Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. It's impossible for us to figure out just how God is doing this, but we can trust his faithful witness. We can believe the testimony of the ruler of all the kings on earth. Jesus Christ will remain on his throne until all his enemies have been put under his feet. John himself, the writer, was, in, was as in much need of this revelation as the churches to whom he wrote. And so are we. That's why here at the end of verse 5, out of nowhere, he just bursts into worship, into doxology. Look at the end of verse 5 again. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Saints, the world will go the way the world is going to go, but Jesus loves us. Did you see that to him who loves us? Did you know this is the only place in the New Testament where the love of Jesus for us is expressed in the present tense? Did you know that? It's, it's always in the past tense. Loved us, loved us in Revelation. In Revelation, at the moment of need, John tells us that he still does and always will love us so that the church in every age would read it in the present tense. To him who loves us. How do we know that he loves us? How could God love us? Because in verse 5, he has freed us from our sins by his blood. The love of Jesus for me is grounded not in my worthiness of it, but in his sacrifice for me. How does Paul know in Galatians 2.20 that Jesus loved him? Because he gave himself for him. How do I know that he loves me? Because of what I read in Ephesians 5 2, because of what I read here in Revelation 1 5. And this might be the hardest thing to believe and have our lives changed by that he loves us because everything we do and everything we work so hard to get usually falls apart. Spouses leave or they die, children do the same thing, jobs and money can very quickly be in short supply. I mean, we, we know this now, don't we? You remember going to the store and trying to get paper towels or toilet paper. And I mean, that was that was like a year ago. I mean, it was crazy. Right. Every, just in a in a moment, sicknesses come, discouragement, displacement come. And we're often left asking in the midst of all that. We were wondering, does he really love me? Does he love me? Beloved, go to the word. Listen, go to Revelation. Go to this book. John is telling us what Jesus told him as clearly as he can. Listen, it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. 
Don't look to your circumstances. Don't look to the world around you to try and figure out whether or not I love you. I love you. You are mine. I'm betrothed to you. Look to the cross. Revelation is not mainly a blueprint. It's not mainly to figure things out. It's to know certain things. And the first and foremost is that, listen, he loves you, church. You are his people. The gospel is the good news that the judgment and wrath we deserved, the wrath that all those who are not in Christ will have come crashing down on them, was poured out on Jesus at the cross for all who believe. And he didn't do this just to save us, but so we would be a kingdom priests to his God and Father or a kingdom of priests to his God and Father in verse 6. So what else can John say then? But to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, all that he has done for us is meant to result in worship. Right As our eyes travel up the beams of the cross, they become locked on the Father who sent his Son to save us and sealed us with his Spirit that we might be his forever. And he has come to John with a final word for his church before the end to remind them, to let them know, I am coming for you. Look at verse 7. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. This same language, by the way, is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the first coming of Jesus in the first century in judgment against Jerusalem, against its temple because of their rejection of the Messiah and for their idolatry. More on that as we study the book. But here, John broadens the language to also apply to the second coming of Jesus at the end of history. Every human being will behold the glorious lion and the lamb who was slain. Every single one of them. Wherever they are, in this life or the next, they will see it. They will behold him, even those who crucified him. Think of what that's meant to do to a suffering, maligned church. Everyone will see. Everyone will know. Everyone. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is our God. Always has been. Always Isaiah 44, 6, Isaiah 48, 12, both record God saying that he is the first and the last. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. This is God's way of saying to his church, I am God. I have my hand on everything that happens from beginning to end. God is already at the end. Everything is being worked out according to his purposes. When God says he is the almighty, it doesn't just refer to his tremendous strength, but it refers to how his power is unleashed on the world in sovereign and providential control over everything that is happening in creation. So, beloved, the message of this first part of chapter one is don't look to what is seen with the eye. Don't look at it. Don't be deceived by what your eyes see. Don't be afraid of the arrogant claims and threats of God's enemies, no matter who they are or how much power they think or they claim to have. Jesus Christ, 
the Messiah and the Lamb of God is the victor through whom God will triumph over the world and the devil once and for all. Always remember, always, there's a reason I so often refer to you as beloved. I'm not really talking about myself, even though I love my church. When I say beloved, it's a reminder of who you are in the eyes of the Father. It's a reminder of His love for you. And here's what Revelation 1 is telling us. That love wasn't just present when He was dying for me. That's when He felt it. No other time. It wasn't just present when He set His saving affections on you from the foundation of the world and chose you in love to be His own and to adopt you. Beloved, He loves you right now as we speak. You think when Jesus gave this, when was given to John that Jesus didn't know that His people would be struggling with sin and so notice there's no qualification to the fact that He loves you. It's just the truth. He loves you. He knows your name. He knows your story. Your steps are ordained. And God is sovereign over the world in which you and I live right now. This is what we need to know. He is the victor, and He is our victor. When you doubt, when we are afraid, when the world and evil seem so big and so powerful and so ultimate and so final, you remember His word. Behold, He is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. This is Revelation. Buckle up. It gets a little crazy, but it is... Beautiful.